0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 will be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. In the Bible provided for you, the hardback and the pew rack in front of you, that would be page 1002. I'm grateful for Timothy's faithful preaching of the Word last week. And eager to pick back up where he left off this week. Pray for our work in raising up and training preachers. And give thanks to God when they serve us. And receive that word not as some type of practice round because that is not how we see it. We see it as a heralding of the word of God by a man equipped to do so. And I was fed and helped. You may know what it feels like to miss an opportunity, maybe, maybe something small in this last year, a class you attempted to sign up for, but missed for it filled up, or a flight that took off before you could, you could get to it. Maybe you missed your connecting flight. I've got particular situations that come to mind. Or maybe something big that has happened in your life that you keep looking back on. A missed opportunity at an important relationship or job or maybe diagnosis. In some cases, there's really nothing we can do. We just miss these opportunities, a connecting flight, for example. But in other instances, we have been clearly Warned. If we could only wind the clock back to hear that warning, and then actually to heed it. Well, this morning we find ourselves under a word of warning given to us by the Holy Spirit, and there is time for us. Let us not miss this. Let's read together Hebrews four verses one through thirteen. Therefore, while the promise. Entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, for they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again the passage said. They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news. Failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is God's word for us this morning. Urgency pervades this section of Scripture that we are in. Urgency, which comes through in a, in a repetition of this word today in several other phrases back with me at chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quoting from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his, his voice, then in verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. And He quotes Psalm 95 again, as it, as it said, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. And verse 1 of chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's an opportunity that will eventually close. 4 verse 7, and again he appoints a certain day, today, and then he quotes it, today if you hear his voice. In verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now he repeats himself in order to keep our attention and to focus our attention with urgency. Urgency. And this urgent word, today, today, rest still stands, there remains time, today lends force behind an urgent warning that he is putting before us. The book of Hebrews includes six warning passages, six instances in which the author turns to directly warn his hearers, his readers, and in which we will hear a warning from God's Word. Uh, We're spending two Sundays in this particular warning, but there are six separate warnings, and these warnings are meant to be read together. So it's not that he has six different things to say It is that he is circling back and again to the same message of warning. And hearing each warning passage in the light of the others will help us to hear them properly and not improperly. Hearing them together will help to resolve a number of problems that some of the warning passages might raise in our minds. Well, in the first warning passage, a chapter and a half ago, We were exhorted to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So without paying careful attention to the message of the gospel that we've heard, we will drift. We do not drift into faith or drift into faithfulness, but away from our Lord. And the Christian life is a life of constant, continual listening, careful hearing. we were also told not to neglect such a great salvation, which is another way of saying pay close attention. Don't neglect such a great salvation. How would we escape God's judgment if we neglect His salvation? No one will arrive at the shores of the presence of God after death, having let go. All those who ever truly lay hold will hold fast until... The end. And so we're warned here again along similar lines, although not exactly the same lines. He's filling out what he means. Well, this morning we have a word concerning salvation and a particular word I want us, and the author wants us to hear. Uh, We have two pictures concerning judgment in order to instill urgency in us concerning salvation. And then we have a final appeal, or we could say, a section on what salvation is. A section on the cost, what what's involved, what it's like to miss out on salvation, and then an answer to the question of how to make sure we we make it. So first, first, our great salvation in one word. There are many words that we need as Christians. Uh, We need the word justification to understand that on the cross, the Lord Jesus suffered unjustly that punishment that would justly fall on us in order that we could stand just before God. It's a bit of an earful, but it's an important word to capture a precious truth. Uh, propitiation is a word that we've learned in this book already. That on the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God against us so that it does not fall on us. He propitiates God's wrath in that way. Liberation. We are liberated from our bondage to sin through Jesus' victory over sin and death and the devil and he liberates us because he frees us from our sins and its penalty we need all of these words and these words tell us what Jesus has done for us well there is another word that is on repeat in this chapter in this long warning uh, and it is the word rest this too is a word that we need When we speak about our great salvation, we might tend to think merely or only about what we're saved from. And it's important to think and to talk and to praise God for what we're saved from. We've even spent time on that in the last number of weeks. But it's as important to ponder and praise God for what He saves us to and for. And this is where this word of rest comes in. It is not essentially what Jesus does for us, but what He gives to us. It doesn't speak in the first place of what He takes from us, the wrath of God, saving us from the penalty of sin and death. But it speaks to what He has purchased for us and gives to us. Salvation, this great salvation, is a salvation from, and it is also a salvation Two, and we need both. Well, what does the author of our chapter mean by rest? He uses it in this section, and he's not done in the book, uh, no less than 13 times. So it's an important idea. It's important in understanding our salvation. Now, when I say the word rest... Several words might come to mind. Your imagination might fire up with a a bed. This afternoon, before the elder Q&A, you might try to catch some rest, a nap. Maybe a beach comes to mind, and a beach chair. That sounds restful, all for that. Go on vacation, have yourself a beach. Those are great. Or maybe a bench comes to mind, a place to sit and take a break from hard work. Work. Well, in a way, all of these are not unrelated to this idea, but they're all quite a bit short. So what would the author have us to imagine when we hear the word rest? What should we fill that word with in our minds as we read it on the page of Scripture? We're going to let him help us. He has given himself to detailed reflection on his Bible. So he's writing the Bible by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews is. But his Old Testament scriptures are ready and engaged. And he has been reading and meditating on his Old Testament, which is our Old Testament scriptures, for what this great salvation entails so that he can preach it to his hearers. And we're going to follow him on the page this morning. And we're going to find out That our Bibles, and this is a bit of a rebuke to us, are not a collection of nice devotional thoughts that we might compile together for a list of our ten favorite Bible verses to carry us from here to the end. We need more than nice Bible verses that we find along the way for inspiration, but we need careful arguments from the Bible. In fact, your perseverance and your assurance hangs on careful argumentation from different points of your Old Testament so that you might know what you have in Christ and so that you might hang on to what you have been given. This author, who is a preacher, this book, which is a sermon, communicates to us something about the nature of preaching that it aims to persuade on the basis of Scripture and can at times involve detailed arguments which pay off later for all kinds of encouragement and assurance and help and steadfastness. What you and I need in an age in which we may be increasingly under pressure to leave Christ, tempted to think maybe we haven't been with the right person all along, Christianity is the wrong place to be, Christ isn't really who he claimed to be, What we really need in this moment is not a Bible verse or two. Those might let us down, for we may hear them wrong. What we need is an argument from the Bible. The author is going to give us that today. I'm going to try to make that argument simpler and plain for us. He has circled around, quoting and re-quoting Psalm 95, and so that's where we need to go. Let's turn there together. Psalm chapter 95. Psalm at 95, excuse me. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible, 150 of them. And we will turn now to Psalm 95. I want to read the Psalm for us And then turn us back to Hebrews, and then I'll unpack it using the author of Hebrews' message. But for now, let me read for us the whole psalm that was in the mind of our author and our readers. It's a psalm of David. Oh, come and let us sing to the Lord, and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. And let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And in His hand are the depths of the earth. And the heights of the mountains are His also. And the sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts And they have not known my ways, and therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. If you look down on the page and you go back to chapter 3, verse 7, you'll notice he begins quoting the second half of Psalm 95. That psalm we just read... Sounds like a lot of psalms, and it calls God's people to thanksgiving and to praise on the basis that God is a great creator and a great shepherd who is near to us, calls us to worship him with reverence. And then there's a turn halfway through the psalm, a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, David, writing this psalm, for some reason, decided after calling the people of God to praise their God and reminding them that he's worthy of worship as a great God, that he would turn then to warn them. For men and women, not unlike his hearers, had witnessed the things that God had done, and had heard similar exhortations, and had heard all of these good reasons, nevertheless had hardened their hearts against God, and rebelled against him, and would not believe in his word. And the Lord loathed that generation, and swore that they would not enter his Rest. Well, what is the rest that he is talking about in this case? Well, David is talking to his readers. He's speaking to Israel, presumably Israel and the land. He's speaking to them a word of warning concerning a generation, many generations earlier, that was not allowed to enter into the land. This matter of the land, very specifically, is what rest was identified with in the context of the conquest, where Israel was led as a nation out of their bondage to Pharaoh through the Red Sea after their sins being taken care of through the Day of Atonement, that, excuse me, the sacrifice of the Passover. Then they were led miraculously through the waters as the Lord parted them. Moses led them. And then in the wilderness between there and the promised land that he'd promised to give their forefather Abraham, uh, they grumbled in their hearts and they rebelled against the Lord and he did not let them into the land. Nevertheless, they were allowed in the land after a generation. Moses and Joshua would lead the next generation into the land. And the place of Canaan that God was giving to his people is that place associated with rest. I need only to read a few verses here from from Joshua. At the beginning of Joshua, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you rest in this land. Until the Lord gives you rest for your brothers as he has, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given them, then you shall return to the land of your possession and possess it. The the possession of this land is the entrance of rest. And at a high point of the book of Joshua, we read this summary. And the Lord gave them rest on every side as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. It was a rest from those who would seek to kill the people of God. And it was a rest into this place, the land. But there's a puzzle here. For clearly, rest entails entrance into the land for that generation being given the land. And yet David, so many years later, is reading that story and preaching it differently to his people. He's preaching through his psalm and the warning that there is more to the rest than mere entrance into the land. And that's because while the Lord gave, uh, through Joshua, rest on every side, we know from the rest of the story of Joshua that there were pockets of resistance in which the people were not faithful to trust their Lord and, and parts that they did not conquer. And a place that we will return to shortly, uh, the book of Judges recounts just how bad it actually went. So they got into the land, and to some expen- extent, they experienced real rest in the land. We're still exploring what this rest means. But David, in his psalm, is indicating that there's more to it than just land. There's more to it than just place. He is seizing on this word today, speaking to his readers who know life in the land, which leads him to another passage. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Turn there with me, and then we'll turn back to Hebrews. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And chapter 2 is the second chapter. How is it that David... warn his own readers about not entering rest and in that way hold out the promise of rest to those in the land already. Well, his meditations take him back to the very beginning of the Bible where chapter 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, sometimes we say that the creation of humanity was the pinnacle of creation. And and to an extent, that's true, the Lord made the universe and everything in it as a habitat for humanity. It's, it's our place to live. And this is the planet where He has placed us. He surrounded us with stars and, and a sky and a moon and a sun. Those are for us, they help us keep time and they keep the night. Light, So that we can see. And they also speak to us about how great and powerful and, and majestic God is. Considering how far away some of these stars are. And it's true that he made humanity in his image. We are special. We are different from the rest of the creation. From animals. We're his vice regents. He's given us dominion over what he has made. There is God. There is the creation. Then there is humanity. The creation of humanity is Is a special moment, climactic. And yet, the seventh day is often overlooked. The seventh day represents what the creation of humanity was ultimately leading to. And I'll leave that there for a moment. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. So now, I want you to listen to his train of thought. I'm going to walk us through this. I'll start back at verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as He said, "I've sworn in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest." Now. This is where his mind shifts to the creation. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. Now again, this isn't because he doesn't know where the passage is. He's a preacher, and he doesn't mean to preach in an encyclopedic way, which is why sometimes I don't quote every verse. Sometimes I get chased down for all the verses that I alluded to a reference. I love you all. I'm not, I'm not going to clutter the air with all of that. And I'm taking my cue from him. There's my Bible verse for not always quoting a Bible verse. It can be helpful to do that. But the Bible verse doesn't come to us with all of these footnotes and encyclopedic references. And a sermon shouldn't sound like that. It should be easy on the ear, not heavy. And so for as heavy as the argument already is, he's leaving out chapter and verse, if you will. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There's your quote from Genesis chapter 2. There's your reference. And again, in this passage, he said, back to nine ninety-five Psalm, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, not so long afterward, and the word's already quoted, today if you hear his voice. For if Joshua, see this, he's reasoning here, if Joshua had given them rest, if, real, if all that God ever intended for his people was, was granted to them through Joshua's victories in the land, well, God would not have spoken up another day later on. God speaking of that day through David in the psalm today. So then, here's the conclusion. There remains for you, hearers, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So he's connecting By way of Psalm 95 and David's prayer and warning, he's connecting the rest that Israel was promised in the land. They were were promised land and in the land they would have rest. He's connecting that with the seventh day of creation. What's going on with the seventh day of creation? Well, the seventh day of creation had no small place in Israel's life. From Exodus 16. And he said to them. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake. And boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside. To be kept till the morning. The people rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it, made it holy. Six days you shall do. Your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So there was work and there was rest after God's own pattern. The author of Hebrews is reading David speaking to his hearers about a present opportunity to enter rest and concluding that what Israel was promised by way of entry into the land, rest being that goal was not fulfilled in the entrance into the land. It's something else. And he's going back then to the book of Genesis and pondering the establishment of that seven-day pattern of work and rest. And considering that what God has for us and had for them is bigger than a mere plot of land. Now, we have a big vision of God and his promises, and we don't discount his actual promises to Abraham and his children. But they were bigger than they heard. In fact, with ears to hear, they would even know it. For Abraham was looking forward to a different country, a city whose designer and builder was God. So all along, Israel at their best, her leaders at their best, were not caught with their heads down looking at lines on the map, but were looking forward through that gift to a greater rest to come. That was merely a a taste, a little shadowy taste of what apparently Adam and Eve entered into with the Lord at creation. You see, that seventh day isn't a throwaway day, a little extra to make sense of our weekly calendar because you're going to need a break from work because you just can't work forever like without a break. So you need a break, and so we've got a seventh day. No, that seventh day indicates to us something deeply theological about our life with God. God made Adam and Eve, man and woman, in his image, and then after he created them, the Lord rested from His work of creating. He wasn't exhausted. He was entering into the purpose and the conclusion toward which His creation was directed. He was. We could say, what is rest? Based on what God did on the seventh day, the Lord entered into the enjoyment of His creation. He entered into the enjoyment of relationship and fellowship with His human creation. And so Adam and Eve were given dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and were to be fruitful and multiply. And yet that seventh day teaches us about the ultimate goal toward which they were created, for which they were created. And that was relationship with God. In a word, in a word, it was rest. The enjoyment of fellowship With God. Putting all of this together, that is precisely what rest signifies, in a word. So, rest, in terms of entry into the land, and looking at that part of the story, that part of the story where Israel enters the land teaches us that rest is like entering into the land. There is a sense in which their deliverance from their enemies, certainly from Pharaoh, and into the land of promise, to be a land flowing with milk and honey, where all of their needs were provided, and where their relationship with God was to be, to be right, we can learn about what salvation is by looking at Israel's story. And as we've said, sometimes we call what's going on in the Old Testament story, topology, uh, like we might say uh, something typifies something else. Something is like something else. The Old Testament story, including the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and those things we studied in Leviticus, is a pattern that is leading us to know what, we, what we've got when Christ comes. And it's not just the priesthood that Jesus fulfills or the sacrifices that he fulfills, or as we've learned, the place, that tent and the tent. The temple that he fulfills as he is the very place of God. But it is even the land promise that he fulfills. For the purpose of entrance into the land was to be in a place delivered from one's enemies and into the presence of God. What does Jesus bring? But deliverance from our great enemy and deliverance into the presence of God. So what is rest? Well, rest is like entrance into the land. And rest is essentially entrance into the enjoyment of fellowship with God. That is what was lost at the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And that is what is pursued by God in the deliverance of his people into the land. But of course, that was not the final stop. Jesus comes to deliver us from our ultimate enemy and into the perfect presence of God two pictures of judgment then having ruminated with all this material on what the author is holding out with this word rest our great salvation now two pictures of judgment two pictures of judgment which should strike fear into you fear Godly fear. A good fear. Not a fear that will drive you from God, but a fear that will drive you to God. If you were warned to sign up for that class, for it will fill up, you might fear that you would miss the opportunity, and sign up. Similarly... More seriously, this passage is here to warn us in order to arrest our attention so that we will hold fast to Christ, pay more careful attention to what we've heard, so as not to drift from him. Two pictures of judgment, and the first is dead bodies strewn about the desert. That is the image in our minds as we read this passage. Look at verse 3, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 7 and following. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts at the rebellion or your fathers put me to the test. I was provoked with that generation and said they go astray in their heart. They shall not enter my rest. They died in the wilderness. Verse 16, for... Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom I was provoked? Was it not those who sinned? And here's the image whose bodies fell in the wilderness? A generation of Israelites whose bodies are strewn about the desert. Men and women dying as that people moved about the wilderness. Left dead, having never entered the land. That is the first image that we are to hold before us. He holds it out in chapter 4 as well. Good news came to them just as to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them, for they were not united by faith with those who listened. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Look at that picture in your mind. Stare at it. Hold it out. As you ponder your Old Testament, what can you take away from all of that? Well, if you should imagine anything, imagine the Day of Atonement where a lamb is slain to take your sins away. Imagine the creation over here. Imagine that first marriage, a picture of of marriage. Imagine light shining out of darkness, a picture of salvation. Imagine rest. Imagine dead bodies strewn about the desert, a warning to you that it's possible to miss entrance into your salvation. It's possible to miss entrance into rest. This is what the author holds out in order to strike fear into you. Fear is His word. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear. Fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Fear. There is a kind of assurance that, I'm going to refer to, generally to Christian circles, you'll find in some circles, uh, that they refuse to offer because any assurance someone may have is presumptuous. How can we know that we're saved? We can not, therefore it's presumptuous to offer and embrace any assurance of salvation. In another circle, it may be that there really is presumption. Pray this prayer and never think twice about whether you belong to God. Uh, Beware camps. We're careful about this at Heritage. Heritage tending to this. If we take our students, or if I were to take my kids to a camp, I'd be concerned not only who is the speaker, I don't just need them outside having good times with Christians, but what is the word being proclaimed? And if it's the gospel that we preach and believe that saves, and if it's the word of God, then praise the Lord, and let's hear it as such. But as important as that is how we handle conversion. Is there an altar call with a simple card signing and an unqualified assurance given and a don't look back, can't lose it, word given, that would put the hearer and that person who has professed or prayed a prayer in a place of never wondering, never needing to try, never striving to enter? Well, there is a third way. And that is assurance without any presumption. And that's the biblical way. Where the author here sees much better things for his hearers. And I see much better things for you with good reason. Than those dead bodies around the desert of Israel. On the way into the land. Oh, but nevertheless, take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And Timothy handled all of this beautifully last week. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You can have a confidence in Christ. Do you have confidence in Christ? Amen. You have assurance in Him. Don't let up your confidence. If you let up your confidence... You'll just be telling yourself and everyone else who looked in what that confidence was really made of. Now there are invisible things happening in this room that I can't see. I'd love to send you all through a scanner and come out with like green or red. Oh, this one's a Christian this one's not. That's just not how it works. How it works is the Lord saves and then He gives you a warning to stay. And if you're His, you stay. Which is why we have this huge section here of warning and a word concerning fear friends let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to have reached it and i promise you this if you give up believing if you harden your heart against the lord if you leave off of him you were never among us and you never were his so what do you do with that hold fast that's what you do with it hold on to christ that's what you do with it Endless introspection about whether this moment in the past was real or not. Maybe you thought you became a Christian at an altar call, at a camp, and a card signing. Maybe you did. That's not where you look for assurance. You look to Christ for it, and you hold fast your original confidence, and then you put yourself in the middle of a church where brothers and sisters won't let you go. And that's what this church is. That's our first picture of judgment. Second picture of judgment. An obese man struck through with a sword. A morbidly obese man struck through with a sword. Let me explain that to you in a moment. Now that I have your attention. (laughs) Look at verse 12 here. Verse 11, excuse me. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now this is an example of one of those verses that we would lift to find encouragement from. And you can find encouragement from this verse. But we typically take it as a general passage about how God's word works generally. But consider the context. Verse 11. Strive to enter so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The next word is a word of judgment. For the word of God is living and active. It's alive because... God is alive, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts and it pierces all the way. It's not only inspired, but it is invasive to joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh boy, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him. To whom we must give an account. This is the sword of God's judgment. Turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 3. One day we'll preach through the book of Judges, it'll be great. And I won't have this surprise anymore, at least for most of you. I think this stands as wallpaper, we'll use that, for the passage we just read. Verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went down and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. This is Israel's foreign enemy, now taking possession of Jericho in the land which they had been given. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah the Benjamite. A left handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, so that's why I say morbidly obese. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all the attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof of his chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from the right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and dung came out. And Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof of the chamber behind him and locked them. Now when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet. And they waited there until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof of the chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When they arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, When the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed, at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man, escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest. For 80 years. And so here we have a message for a man under God's judgment, a message in which God executes his judgment by means of a two edged sword. Now, there are other things going on in this passage which I'd be very excited to get to, but this whole, when we get to Judges, you can read and study ahead if you like. But this whole scene here slows down as if in slow motion to watch the judgment by two edged sword into the man. Now, I'm not positive of this, but I think that stands as background for what we've seen in Hebrews chapter 4. You can turn back with me. And hey, everyone, we can learn a little something from middle schoolers, a lot from them, um, and that that was pretty funny. It really was. So those of you who laughed, you were in tune with the Holy Spirit. I really think it's hilarious. Now there are other instances of a two-edged sword, but there's some, there's some linguistic ties here with secrets exposed and a secret message and a message, a word from God. And here we have a word from God. But, but maybe this was the most convincing to me is that the author of Hebrews will move in several instances chronologically through portions of his Bible, and his readers are tracking with him. In chapter 11, you work through the whole Bible chronologically, and other passages from Abraham forward. In this case, we have Moses, and then we have Joshua, and what comes after Joshua but the story of Judges, and so almost like the author is skipping from part of the story to the next, he relives in his mind the story of Joshua and the rest as they entered it, but the bad day when, when Israel failed over and over again in the land, and that is the story of Judges. And so let us strive to enter that rest, unlike that generation, so that no one may fall. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so... The word of God is not only inspired, but it is invasive and it gets all the way down. And it is in the first place, in context here, a word of judgment. Don't be found on the other side of that sword, which will go all the way in. Nothing left, unexposed. You, friend, me, all of our sin to give account before the living God. But here's the good news. The good news is that we still have time. And that takes us into our third portion of the the sermon here. We still have time. And is that not a refrain that we have heard on the page? Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. There's time not to fall away. Every day, as it's called today, this is a communal warning. This is a continual, everyday kind of Christian life, Christian church kind of warning. It's a warning That indicates by virtue of the fact that it's a warning that there is still time. Our passage opens while the promise of entering still stands. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. You can enter this rest. And this rest about which the passage speaks is a rest that you can enter right now. Even as it is a rest that is not entirely complete. The author of Hebrews will speak elsewhere concerning this rest. That the the Old Testament saints looked forward to a city whose foundations and designer was God? That Abraham was seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one? That we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. And that's good news, because if we enter the rest of God, if we have a great salvation, and yet we find ourselves plundered and pillaged and persecuted in this age, is this all that God has for us? Is this... Is this the rest on the seventh day that we were to know? Well, no, it's not. The author will speak as well. He'll say, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is true. You can enter God's rest today. And you must hang on to it as long as it's called today. For we have tasted, we have tasted in the word of God In Christ, all that is to be ours in terms of rest, and yet all that we have tasted it, and yet all that will be ours will come in its fullness when we meet our Lord, when we arrive at the gates of that heavenly city, that heavenly country. No, this is not it. Yes, we have a taste of it. And thank God there is still time for you and me. So friends, let us take care That we not have an evil unbelieving heart but exhort one another today and let us strive every day to enter that rest. Let's pray. Father we we thank you for this old story with its seventh day of creation and the the seven-day pattern in the Old Testament that spoke of a great day to come when Christ would, would hold out by way of invitation, rest to us, those who are weary and heavy laden. And we thank you for the story of Israel and even the repeated failures that you permitted so that we might today hear this word and with great urgency take care of our own souls and of the souls of our brothers and sisters to see that we all enter this rest. Comfort us with this promise. It is a very good promise. Father, we pray for fear, to fear missing this, but we pray for all of the comfort that we are to know and the knowledge that we have a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and who is taking care of all of our sin for us so that we may be assured even as we avoid presumption. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.